regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Welcome to another episode of Datacast. Today I'm on the live with Peter Coy. He is a data scientist and engineer based out of London. He can be found on Twitter and he also regularly speaks at different conferences. He has written a book consisting of numerous interviews with data scientists throughout the world. He is a passionate uh, open source uh, developer, evangelist, a supporter who have contributed to PyMC3. He is also the father of a Pastel startup currently working on hyper-personalized audio. So, uh, Peter, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, I want to start our interview discussing your educational background. I saw that you have a uh, Bachelor of Science degree in Physics and Philosophy at the University of Bristol, uh, in which your thesis is related to the geometric spaces in optics. So, can you discuss your undergrad experience? So I don't think there's anything really of relevance in the thesis or anything like that in particular. Um, but I do think it's worth clarifying, you know, what I think the skills that a good science background gives you in, in professional data science, which is like problem solving, understanding how to model problems, uh, some programming skills. And also, I think also philosophy ta- taught me a lot about understanding things like the epistemic aspects of of you know a, a data problem because you know often we assume that often we run into in the real world like things like measurement error or you know we have a system that's poorly instrumented or we actually have things that are unknowable so i think i think that kind of explains some of the the reasons why i end up doing what i'm doing now i see and so after that you pursue a master degree in mathematics from uh, the university of luxembourg so would you mind discussing your, your master thesis in more detail? So I actually had a break in between my bachelor's and my master's. I um, I taught in a school in Ireland, where I'm from. Um, I think that was a beneficial experience as well, um, because um, I think a lot of... Um, a lot of the challenges I run into day to day or opportunities I run day to day are like communicating risk. And that's a big part of like teaching or communicating in general. Um, in my master's, I did a lot of, uh, uh, standard pure mathematics, um, stochastic calculus, um, like, uh, geometry, topology, all these sort of things. Um, and my thesis was more hands-on towards the machine learning side. I looked at, um, uh, uh, improving a forecasting algorithm for time series forecasting. And you have um, a very diverse work experience uh, since uh, you finished with your education. Can you uh, comment on your, your work experience with different companies and what are some of the things that you learned about 
that there are maturities and the difference of uh, established company and scaled ups? I mean, there's been a lot of like soul searching in the kind of data community about you know why is uh, why are my data scientists underutilized and why am I you know or even people complaining personally themselves. I think like I spent some time at Amazon and Amazon like you know has a has a very strong data culture and very strong analytical culture and also has the scale that a lot of um, you know machine learning can have significant returns on investment but they've also been doing this stuff for about 20 years so i mean you have to remember that there are like interviews with jeff bezos from like about 2000 which is like 19 years ago when he's talking explicitly about aap testing and various advanced machine learning algorithms in an interview with the wall street journal so you know like that's a long time to build up a culture and a long time to sort of like build up the data infrastructure so one of the things that i quite like is monica regatti uh, who used to she's consultant now she's been linkedin you talks about like the ai hierarchy of needs and i think that's definitely something i've run into at more established companies i think if you don't have the right kind of like uh technological infrastructure it doesn't make sense to hire someone to do machine learning right you you have other needs you have whether they are product development needs whether they are business needs or whatever I think also that not every company needs data science, right? You know, you need data science if you have an ability to have a competitive advantage uh, from data, right? You don't, you know, not all companies are like that. Some companies have a competitive advantage from the brand. Some companies have a competitive advantage from other aspects. Um, so I think that uh, it's kind of like, I think we've learned a lot over the last five to six years, which has really been the duration of my career about like, what different companies need and, uh, and stuff like this. And also you can probably get an algorithm uh, to a certain degree or get even, uh, I think most more companies need analytics and they need machine learning and, and more companies need software engineering than they need analytics, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's definitely, um, I think, that as a community, we've sort of emphasized too much around the algorithm side, as opposed to the like adding business value. So, you know, I think that's just definitely something I've learned. Awesome. So um, earlier this year, you have co-founded a company called Mic Labs, which developed a technology platform that powers and enables the creation of um, hyper-personalized audio. So can you tell the audience about this latest venture? So it's a little bit too early to talk a lot about what we're doing. We're still kind of in stealth. But um, podcasts are a very exciting market. You know, they're growing at about 2x over the past four years in terms of listening behavior. Um, and there's been a lot of improvements in things like um, synthetic voice, for example, that are, um, you know, like human level. So that's kind of like really all I can talk about it. I I, I look forward to uh, talking about this a bit more soon in the, in a few months, mm-hmm. especially if we start hiring. Um, I'll, I'll come back on the show and talk all about this. But um, until then, I'm keeping this pretty much under wraps. No worries at all. Um, so now I'm going to move on to talk a couple bit about you know your other uh, miscellaneous project. So um, in a series interview with data scientists, you interview with 24 of the world's most influential and innovative data scientists from across the spectrum. 
What are some of the common themes that you found out from doing this conversation? I think it's a little bit related to my my question about my my answer about my career. So I think, um, yeah, focusing on business value is a big aspect of it. Like um, that seems to be a thing that comes up over and over again in this in these interviews. Um, the challenges of like um, of of integrating a new discipline into uh, into a companies, right? So I think um, I think we underestimate how difficult it is to bring in a new function. And a lot that comes up a little bit in it. The importance of like really asking clarifying questions about what kind of data science role you want. So I think whenever I did those interviews, uh, I don't think we really talked about things like machine learning engineer or machine learning platform engineer or data analyst. We kind of still had everything in like a data science uh, job description. And the importance of like good project management and communication. So I think definitely something that a lot of people struggle with whenever they leave academia is they, they they don't understand the importance of managing expectations and communicating risk importantly and and that's a really important part of a successful data science project right I see so I think those are the themes it's still available um, I still donate the proceeds to NumFocus which is an awesome organization supporting open source software um, so you're more than welcome listeners to purchase it great um, and you're also a call contributor to PyMC3 uh, which is a Python package that uh, do based in statistical modeling and uh, yep. prob- probabilistic machine learning, focusing on uh, advanced Markov chain Monte Carlo and variational inf- inference algorithms. So yep. for people who are not familiar with this package, can you discuss it in more detail? Probabilistic programming is, uh, is a part I mean, that's really useful in any situation where you have, you care a lot about uncertainty. So examples of this are like things like A/B testing, or where you have a lot of like small groups of data, like you know, like kind of nested data. So you know, an example of this would be, um, you know, I did a good example a couple of years ago about sports, right? So you you actually have a lot of data about the whole uh, competition, right? You have all the scores, but you have very little data about specific teams, right? So if you're trying to estimate which team is a better team than other teams, which is a, you know a, a normal question in sports analytics, you you know you kind of have to you have, kind of have to do what's called a hierarchical Bayesian model, and this like allows you to sort of like pool together your, your multiple results and other information that you have. And the other strength of Bayesian modeling is anywhere that you have you know, kind of prior knowledge. So you might like, for instance, to use a sports example, you might know that score uh, scores can never be negative, and so you can design a, a distribution um, that will fulfill those criteria. You mentioned about the application of probabilistic programming in spot analytics. So I'm just kind of curious, what what application in other fields that you know this paradigm can also be utilized? Yeah, so um, I did a survey a couple of months ago um, as part of my online course. I run an online course that teaches these technologies, mm-hmm. so it teaches these uh, approaches. And like overwhelmingly, A-B testing is the biggest use case. Mm-hmm. You know, And there's various good reasons for that. A-B testing is a very lucrative and important part of modern day like e-commerce. You know, it's there's a lot of money at stake. You're, you're on your certainty aspect matters a lot and it's also um 
you know, you, you know, so you care if it's, you know, if it's, uh, if you're predicting a click through rate at, you know, at 10% accuracy, you know, with a t- like a spread of plus or minus 10% versus plus or minus 1%, you know, these are significant things. And also you have a lot of like nested data, right? You'll, you'll have, um, you'll have a lot of like, on, you know, on an e-commerce, uh, platform, say, you might have a category of shoes and within shoes you have like very small data about particular shoes if that makes sense mm-hmm. um, and if you have uh, and you can imagine this with other hierarchies so it's naturally a very amenable approach to that and uh, and that's like and so pymc3 is used at companies like uh, stripe um amazon used at google monetate uh, companies like this, you know, mm-hmm. so it's used uh, quite a few companies around the world. Quantopian, uh, and there's a there's a um, there's a whole list of these on some of the blog posts I've read. You also give a lot of talk in different conferences and in on your talk back in PyData London in 2016. You you compare and and talk about you know the differences between um, PyMC3, uh, Scikit-Learn, and Starts model. Because these are all like different yep. this, um, statistic, statistic Python package that quite yep. popular. So can you talk about some of the major differences between them? So yeah, so in that talk, which is probably a little bit dated now, um, I specifically looked at linear regression models, sorry, logistic regression models in all three packages, one in the Bayesian paradigm, one in a more machine learning paradigm, you know, kind of designed by computer scientists and in the stats models case more in a statistical paradigm there's a bit more information there i would say unless you have a situation where you care a lot about uncertainty you should be doing you know a traditional machine learning approach or statistical approach um the bayesian st- uh, modeling really only helps whenever you have a, a large you know uncertainty uh, or prior knowledge as i already discussed but I showed how you could get the same results, and I showed how they can. These are the same things. The advantage of a probabilistic programming approach is that in situations where you care about it, you get that uncertainty quantification on top of things, which really, which can be really important in like a financial situation where you have a lot of financial mo- you know, a financial model that you want to build, mm-hmm. and therefore you have a lot of capital to allocate, and allocating capital. You know, it's an uncertain thing in the first place, and also, or in that kind of A/B testing approach that I've already talked about, A/B testing paradigm, where you care a lot about um, how accurate your results are. Mm, Does sure. that answer your question? Yeah, definitely. You already mentioned, you know, the the online courses, probabilistic programming primer that you desire to teach people how to learn to enhance modeling abilities and better communicate risk. So. How was your experience uh, experience designing the curriculum to you know, to to meet uh, people's different needs? Yeah, so the course kind of grew organically out of some of the talks I've given over the years. Um, I've given like a on top, uh, you know, I've given quite a few workshops internally, refining this material over the last couple of years. The, the reason I decided, so I sort of took stuff that I already had and showed it to some friends, you know, some of the PyMC3 community, some other friends got their feedback and sort of like uh, filled in the gaps and made a more solid product. And then to test the water, I like, I, I'd launched a like email 
like I collected a bunch of emails, like a kind of landing page. I saw if there was any market need, and I sort of talked to people about who who were interested and said, "What well, you know, what would they interest in explicitly?" And sort of that's how I put that together. Um, and I think it works quite well. I'm quite happy with that product. The screencast thing, I think, and the notebooks that are included, I think, is a very good teaching aid. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I do is I is I explicitly do things wrong, right? So I, I mm-hmm. I'll make a bug or whatever explicitly in the code, and I sort of like show how you debug it. I think that's quite a useful thing because often whenever you look at something on the internet, you'll see the full solution without like the reality that you know there's an iterative approach, right? None of us gets anything right first thing, and so it's got case studies, it's got an A/B testing case study, it's got a um, a supply chain analytics case study, you know, for optimizing um, uh, truck allocation, you know, a common mm-hmm. problem at somewhere like Amazon or Deliveroo or DoorDash or any of these companies, Delivery Hero, uh, you know, you have, a, you have a finite number of things to deliver, you want to allocate it to delivery trucks or delivery drivers. Um, and that's quite a cool example. And there's a couple other ones, there's a sports analytics example, and there's um, a self-driving car example. So you, you get a good example, a good collection of examples of how this stuff is used in the real world. And, you know, you also learn the basics of the ANO, uh, which is uh, still relevant, even though it's going to be discontinued because a lot of TensorFlow is copying the ANO or inspired by it, and a lot of PyTorch too. And you get a good understanding of like, uh, I also look at other libraries. I look at Pyro, I look at Rainier, I look at some Stan. So you get a good collection of ideas about modern-day probabilistic programming. Awesome. I'll be sure to include that into the show notes. So for people who are interested in, please, you know, please in signing up for that, they can they can uh, see the interest. In another talk called A Map of the Pi Data Stack, back at uh, Pi Data Amsterdam in 2016, you examine the Pi Data ecosystem. Um, so, what current development or software package in this system that you're most excited about uh, in 2019? So then I was very excited about Dask and Blaze. Um, I haven't seen as much progress on them as I expected. Um, I think some of that is because these are really hard problems, and some of is um, some of those projects are even like kind of. Uh, uh, become distributed. Um, I wasn't as excited about Spark. I had a lot more reservations about Spark back then, but it seems to me now that Spark has got a lot of mindshare. Um, I guess like there's, um, there's, there's kind of like a very, uh, a big missing link there that I don't talk about, which I think is very important now, which is kind of like, not really a, the Pi data stack, but like the kind of like data engineering stack, which is like the likes of Airflow and some of these other tools out there, these workflow managers. But I think it's like a really, you know, a very important thing in a modern data scientist or data engineer's um, uh, a toolkit. Um, so, yeah, I, I want to move on to uh, discuss, you know, a couple of your blog posts that you run on your website since you've been blogging quite uh, consistently for almost like eight or nine years now. Yeah, so, so you know, on your post go, how to successfully deliver data science in the enterprise, you talk about the 
people, processes, and things that require to make data science a successful component in the enterprise businesses. Can you uh, elaborate on that? And you know, how has your uh, you know uh, observation uh, been changed since you writing that post? So I haven't read that post in a while, so I can't. But I think uh, paper processes and things. Yeah, I think that's really important, right? I think you. I think that's an unchanging thing about building any innovative function, right? I think that applies. That applies in the army. That applies in a, a creative agency. That applies in a lot of different areas. But do you have anything, any specific questions about that article? It's been, it's been a while since I read that, so I think I talked a lot about stakeholder management, right? You talk about, you know, it's, it's very important to uh, remember that the goal is business change and and executives need to be communicated those goals throughout the organization. And you also mentioned, uh, make, I guess like you make a comparison that uh, the other side is like a team sport, which, which involves a lot more than just hiring data scientists, you know, so I guess... Um, the, the, that assumption is like data scientists, just like a, a small function within the team, and and kind of ha- have to work alongside different other teams. Yeah, I think it's frankly unrealistic to expect one person to have a unicorn collection of skills that, like some of the data science job descriptions I saw a few years ago, had. You know, you can't be an expert in high performance computing and Hadoop and machine learning and statistics and A-B testing and stakeholder management and and various other things, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that it was like ludicrous nonsense and poor poor dis, you know, poor decision making and poor uh, job descriptions by companies, right? So I think it's very important to think about, you know, who your overall team is and what their different strengths are and and we all have different focuses right you know some of the most successful teams i've worked in you know you had one person who was really into analytics and really into a b testing you had one person who's really into bayesian models and saw a lot of opportunities for that and then you had someone who was really really good at optimizing a machine learning model right you know they were the person that you handed a machine learning model that was running a little bit slow and they sort of adjusted that and then you had some people who were much more towards the kind of full stack data engineering uh, toolkit who were really interested in building data pipelines and optimizing them. So, I mean, it's it's ludicrous to expect just one person to fill, to fill that. And I think definitely data science is a team sport. In another piece called Building Full Stack Vertical Data Products, you, you talk about the sixth reason that uh, it can be difficult to deploy data science internally at a corporate organization. Uh, one of the points that kind of stand out to me is that um, building data product is hard and risky, and you advocate to an approach to data product in a lean startup kind of way. So, can you um, discuss this in more in more detail with with some examples? Peter Skoramok, um, and I'm sorry if I've pronounced Peter's name wrong. I recently gave a talk at. Um, uh, on a Riley conference where he talked about where he said something like the movement to machine learning for an enterprise is 100 times harder than going to mobile. Mm-hmm. I thought about this a lot because that's a sensational sentence, right? You know, it's like a very uh, evocative, very uh, much eat a lot of uh, remarks, a lot of pain. Um, and Peter's got a lot of experience. Um, 
been doing this for about 20 years. And I think it is largely true, right? So, you know, fundamentally, the mobile movement, you know, getting people to use mobile apps was just a UX change, right? It was fundamentally just a, you know, quite a cosmetic thing and involved devices that people had, etc. There was like consumer trends. But getting an operation, the operational change to like adopt like high risk projects and like and scientific projects, right? You know, science involves experimentation, experimentation involves failure. I think it's very difficult for organizations, right? It's a very slow cha- you know, change, particularly if they don't have the data infrastructure in there in the first place. So I advise, and I'll, I'll send it to you, you can put it in the show notes, I advise people to have a look at those slides. Um, I think it's important to align yourself to a key metric of the organization. And I think it's important to produce value end-to-end, right? Mm-hmm. So if you can produce... Like, so for, concretely, if you are building a machine learning classifier for a fraud detection problem, and the minimum thing you can do is uh, end-to-end, like, SQL query that, you know, does some Python something and outputs something in, it, like, a kind of if statement. It may even be an if statement. And that can be put into a system then you've added value, right? Now, it might be that that baseline is only 60% accurate, but if that baseline is 60% accurate beforehand, your your best guess was 50%, you've, you've already got a 10% improvement, right? And there, you've got a system end-to-end as your baseline, and you've learned a lot, right? You've, you've built the infrastructure, you've um, what you need to build in the first place, right? Um, you, you can't you know, and and you you know, you'll probably have some sort of evaluation metrics uh, on top of that, and you'll you'll also have produced business value, right? So the alternative thing would be to have gone off and like worried a lot about you know kind of like solving a Kaggle problem, but you wouldn't have solved the business problem, right? You if you just solved the Kaggle problem on your computer on behind a Jupyter notebook, you've not like produced something end to end. So I think it's very important to produce something end-to-end value as soon as possible, even if it's not machine learning. And in the past, I've had data scientists said to me, oh, but that thing you put in production wasn't uh, wasn't data science. I, well, I don't care, right? Mm-hmm. I care about business value. Mm-hmm. I think we all should care about business value because, you know, um, there's a lot of good, you know, because fundamentally the model is just a small part of it, right? There are business rules, you know, uh, you know, and you might discover, for example, to use a fraud detection case, which is quite a good use case, you might discover that there are certain business rules that you have to do on top of this system, right? You might have uh, partnerships with third-party partners that you you have to give a different price, you know, a different kind of like response to, or they have a different service level agreement or whatever. You know, there's there's you'll discover things about the business world from doing that. I think that's probably more important than, and it might be that, uh, you know, certain countries you, you, you just don't do business with at all, right? So you should just block, by default, block them, right? So there's there's various, like, I'm, I'm speculating here a little bit about, like, business examples, but there are various business rules that you will encounter. And this here, and I think the key point is that the system, right, the end-to-end system is the value, right? Mm-hmm. Software only adds value when it's in production, and data science only adds value when it's in production. Yeah, so so this notion, this importance of providing end-to-end value, 
like say when when you interfacing with like new data centers, how often do you actually see them do that in practice? I think it depends on how. It often depends on the infrastructure and the maturity of the data scientist. So if the data scientist is is a good engineer, they'll often be able to build a lot of that stuff themselves. If they're more on the science side, they'll often do things that are quite academic. Mm-hmm. And quite an academic is a is a derogatory term in, 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 in the professional world. It often means that you're doing something that's not adding value. And sometimes that's not their fault. Sometimes that's poor management or a misalignment of expectations and and uh, I've definitely, I definitely think a natural tension for data scientists, and this is something I'm guilty of myself, is that we will we'll go off and analyze stuff too much or we'll get too excited about building a model, right? And you have to sort of like take a step back and manage yourself or have a team that manages you, right? You know, there's, there's definitely a role there for good product management that sort of keeps you focused on uh, executing. Um, so I wouldn't be able to comment on percentages. Mm-hmm. I think we're still very early in the kind of like doing a lot of this, and we're still like as a community we have a lot to learn. But mm-hmm. like um, it took software development maybe fifty years to to really get this sort of stuff right. So it might take us a little while longer to. You know, article called "One Weird Tip to Improve the Success of Data Science Projects." You said that it's very important to write out the risks before embarking on a project. Yeah, you give some examples, you know, like in terms of uh, engineering risk or data risk or legal risk. So um, I'm just curious, can you elaborate more on that point? I don't really have like a particular framework, but something I've done beforehand is like, I'll get a Google Doc with a collaborator and I'll write out, you know, what the risks are of this project, right? And I write up, you know, why why would this project fail, right? And what you know, what's the possibility, you know, you know what what could possibly go wrong? And this is almost very good because if you have people from different perspectives, you'll you'll generally discover something like um, here's a concrete example. You know, it's not clear if that data is publicly identifiable information and if that data is PII we can't use it in this system or you know we're, we're banned by law it might be that um, the model will be too difficult to explain to a stakeholder and the stakeholder won't like adopt it so that's like an adoption risk it might be that if you're doing something in a kind of like market uh, facing role it might be that the model produces results in a recommendation engine and this uh, hurts the user experience so much that uh, you lose money, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's all sorts of ways about this and and it's good to explicitly, it's just good project management, right? It's good to explicitly acknowledge what they are. You won't get all of these right, but it is interesting that just just the process of thinking about this, right? Because not everything, it might be that your model that you spend six months on a model. I've actually done this myself, right? I spent six months on a model before my career and I could only get it improving by 4% over the baseline, right? Mm -hmm. And the 4% wasn't a significant enough change to justify it really, right? You know, the the cost of doing that and that, that, that might have been a kind of a data problem. It might be that, that you don't have the data, right? There's another thing, right? We often start projects before fully clarifying what data we have. 
So therefore, one of the first things you might want to do in a lean startup way is de-risk that particular part of the project. Mm-hmm. That might mean spend a couple of weeks uh, exploring the data, doing plots, you know, uh, visualizing it, you know, really understanding what your response variable looks like, et cetera, et cetera, before you can sort of commit to a more uh, deep project, right? Because I think we often commit to things before we've really done a proper risk management exercise. Absolutely. And then in in another post called Three Pitfalls for Non-Technical Managers Managing Data Science Teams, you you went over the three things that non-technical managers will get wrong in managing a technical project, including first, believing process will fix everything. Second, not understanding the nuance of the work. And third, don't understand the messiness of data sources. So how can a non-technical manager avoid these pitfalls? Well, I'm not sure because there's different views on this. There's the view that some companies have and some cultures have that, you know, that to be a functional manager of a team, you need to have done that role. And therefore, you shouldn't be a manager of a data science team if you've never done data science. Now, I'm not too sure if I hardly believe that because um, I can see the attraction, but I think that depends on other skills. And I don't want to like leave people out of this discipline, but I will like to say the following challenge, right? Mm-hmm. Do not become a manager of a technical team if you don't want to at least learn a lot about the technical discipline. And it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to do it, but you need to have a sort of like a deep nuanced understanding of the risk and the challenges of it, right? So you can't, I think you can be a successful manager of a software development team without having done software development, but I think it's very hard. And anyone who has done it, and I've worked with in the past, and some who have, has developed a deep understanding of software development. You know, that means understanding. I think that's where the whole process fixed everything is. So I think if you don't understand anything, you know, a lot of us, we try to put a process, right? And But software is flexible and data science is messier, right? Data science is actually riskier than software development, right? Is, you know, it, is, it doesn't fit into like a Prince 2 kind of like framework, right? So it's not a rigorous project development uh I think that's where a lot of the challenges come. So I think a lot of companies have have rather naively put someone uh, with communication skills who come from a marketing background or a finance background or whatever to in charge of a data science team, and it it just hasn't worked well in the past, in my own experience, because they haven't developed a deep understanding of the technical discipline. More popular post that you wrote is called "What Does It Mean to Be a Senior Data Scientist." Do you present some ideas on what a senior data scientist should understand? Uh, and two points, kind of like, you know, uh, I found to be interesting, uh, you know, a senior data scientist should understand the soft side of technical decision making and should also understand about ethics in, in data science. So, so cool. can you summarize these two points um, and, you know, what does it mean by, by that? So I think it's very important to understand feel about tools and how you know how people feel about certain approaches and and how people feel about you know technology right so i think um there's a lot about like how you you know 
how you build a machine learning product and then like allow you know, a certain amount of agency, right? So if you build a, you know, I've seen this in the past where if you build a machine learning product and you just give people the results, people don't like it. But if you give them some sort of way of interacting with the results, there's more adoption, right? Now, it might not that you've actually changed anything there, but you've just allowed more control and more kind of, ex you know, or you've enhanced the explainability of the UX experience. I think that's, in some sense, very soft, right? That's just, This is less about, you know, whether something is the the best result, uh, the uh, objective function or whatever of a machine learning model, but it's more about the kind of softer human side um, or the human factor side. What was the other question? The ethics it, it part of things. Right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so I mean, I think there's been some great um, progress on this, right? There's like, there's now we have frameworks on the ethical side of, of AI. And I've seen some of these people say that's about it, like a checklist. I've seen these sort of things. So, yeah, there's, yeah, so there's, there's these frameworks to check, you know, like, you know, have you received permission, et cetera, et cetera, you know, these sort of things, will this be used in a biased way, et cetera. And these are all important things, I think, because I think one of the staggering things about tech, and I think this is underappreciated by people of, of my generation is that we've gone from in like less than 30 years from being like a bunch of geeks or hobbyists to being a part of some of the world's biggest companies by market capitalization, right? And some of the world's most powerful companies. And I think that with that takes responsibility, right? So with that, we have to think as practitioners about like how AI will be used, you know, it will be used for nefarious ways, right? And I think that there are, you know, and we should think about things like, um, uh, you know, prejudice models. You know, we should, we should think about all these things because we, you know, because we have a responsibility. We have power, mm -hmm. and with power takes comes responsibility. Definitely, and kind of related to that point about ethics in AI, a very up and coming or maybe ongoing development in this field is on model explainability. And um, yep. last year, you, you went to the DataFrame podcast with, with Datacom and you talk about, you know, model interpretability, which is, you know, very important in modern day machine learning system. Can you maybe just give a very quick tour of uh, what, what does more model explainability means and what are some of the, you know, popular techniques that that being used uh, nowadays to by, by, you know, different companies as well as academia? So people can, uh, you know, get some sort of introduction to to this new field. So I think that like, um, so I think Bayesian models have a, a place to play in this because you, you get like, you know, you get uncertainty quantification and you, you get a certain element of explainability because you understand what your priors are. You know, so that's kind of one approach. The other approaches are very interesting is like the likes of Lime, locally interpretable model agnostic explanations, or SHAP, S-H-A-P, I forget what that stands for. Um, and they basically go on top of a machine learning model or a similar model, and they tell you, you know, you know stuff about your, your, uh, your model, what your different parameters mean, um, like uh, you can tell, like, for instance, I use it for a credit risk model, it would tell you what why you were feeling a credit risk model, right? Or why you were passing, right? What of your scores was the best? And, and you were able to explain this to uh, someone who was looking for a lending, 
you know, what you could do actionably. Um, so these are some, of, I think, so I think Lime and Shop are definitely, I've never used Shop professionally, but Lime and Shop are definitely two of the things that are most used in, in industry now. And uh, I think this is an ongoing field and it's a very exciting field because, um, as, I, as I already said, uh, with great power comes responsibility and explainability and trust is going to be a big thing for, for models going forward. So Peter, uh, at this point of the conversation, I want to move on to a closing segment. Um, in which I want to ask you like just three quick rapid fire questions in which you can give some um, resources and tactical advice for people who are interested in learning more about them. Okay. Um, the first question is, sure. what are some of the companies which are doing exceptional data science work that you admire? I'm a big fan of Stitch Fix, um, um, just from their blog and some of the cool stuff they've been doing over the years and how they integrated data into their... Um, into their executive team under Eric Coulson and uh, Brad Klinenberg and various other uh, people there. Uh, Ravelin in London are doing some cool work with uh, you know their their machine learning product for fraud detection. They're doing some some cool work from the side of things. I've seen some nice stuff coming out of Stripe in recent years, um, especially on the kind of fraud detection side as well. And some of their like their Stripe radar product. I think that's very uh, inspiring. Uh, Spotify historically with, you know, Discover Weekly, I think is like one of the greatest data products that exists out there. Um, great work by like Eric Bernardson and some of the other people in that team. The second question is that, what is one book that you would recommend for people who want to develop a better analytical mindset? So it's not an analytical book, but it's like kind of a... Um, communication book, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, and get the original version that's a bit less politically correct, but a bit better read. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, we don't work with computers, we work with, with people, right? Yeah. And to work with people, you have to persuade and communicate and stuff, and I think this is an underappreciated skill. Absolutely. Um, and the last question is that, imagine that you could send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on Twitter, what could you tweet about? Don't look down on soft skills. All right, Peter, thanks a lot for, for you know, being part of our conversation. You said you have shown a lot of like good nugget and wisdom through your career as well as through your various articles and talks. And, you know, um, I think just from my experience doing research on you, I, I learned a lot, a lot more about the sort of um, Bayesian statistic or, you know, probabilistic programming in general. So this has been, for me, a, a very educational conversation, and I'm sure that a lot of the audience is going to find that content as well. And yeah, uh, I really appreciate you sharing your experience, and thanks a lot for being part of my podcast. Okay, thank you very much. Well... That's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. 
goodbye for now.